Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. 15 years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio open source. And thank you. I'm Christopher Leighton. This is Open Source. Martin Luther King Jr. delivered his second most famous speech 55 years ago this week. Three years earlier, he'd been the youngest ever to win the Nobel Peace Prize. One year later, to the day, he was assassinated. Dr. King's sermon at Riverside Church in Manhattan beamed a searing moral judgment on the war in Vietnam and equally on the soul of America. It was an anti-war speech for Vietnam time and it resounds today like a call to conscience and to moral realism for all time, including our own. We're opening that time capsule this hour in our collaboration with the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft in a radio and podcast series we're calling In Search of Monsters. Quincy Institute founder Andrew Basevich will be one of our guests. Before Dr. King's Vietnam speech in April 1967, the drive in his civil rights movement had been aimed at equality and justice for the descendants of slavery and for poor people in general. But the war had undermined the priorities and the funding for social reform, he said, so Vietnam had forced a turn on his vocation. And I knew that I could never again raise my voice against the violence of the oppressed in the ghettos without having first spoken clearly to the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, my own government. Two countries are in peril together in Dr. King's speech. If America's soul becomes totally poisoned, King said, part of the autopsy must read Vietnam. He said, the war in Vietnam is but a symptom of a far deeper malady within the American spirit. Brandon Terry strikes our keynote this hour to set the famous Riverside Church speech in Martin Luther King's life and times, also to consider why it rings so powerfully through the changed reality and morality, the power and perplexity of the U.S. in the world of 2022. Brandon, how do you read the Riverside speech called A Time to Break Silence? for our time as well as his. Chris, I want to thank you for having me and thank you for highlighting what I happen to think is one of the most important and enduring pieces of American rhetoric and public philosophy ever crafted. And that's King's speech at Riverside Church on April 4th, 1967, one year to the day that he would be gunned down on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel. And for me, the speech stands out over the test of time, in part because he predicted something deeply troubling about the tendencies and structural constraints of American life, that we had unleashed what he called the triple evils of militarism, materialism, and racism Mm. in this society, and they had congealed into a structure of permanent war. Many versions of the speech are called Beyond Vietnam because he ends the speech with a warning that this is not just about Vietnam. We'll be mourning a similar situation in Latin America, in the Caribbean, in Southeast Asia, he warns, uh, if we don't do something about the deeper maladies of the American spirit. And I think he diagnosed presciently those maladies in this speech. There's a word In the speech and in your reading of it, maturity, that I'd love you to expound. But maybe we should just hear from what he said. 
The world now demands a maturity of America that we may not be able to achieve. It demands that we admit that we have been wrong from the beginning of our adventure in Vietnam, that we have been detrimental to the life of the Vietnamese people. The situation is one in which we must be ready to turn sharply from our present ways. It's a funny word in a speech like this, maturity. (laughs) That's right. And it's something that I think nearly everybody overlooks in the speech. Most people focus on his argument that Vietnam sucked away resources from the Great Society like a demonic suction tube. He uses that image. People focus on his humanitarian concern about the evils of unjust war visited upon the peasants on the Vietnamese countryside. But he also raises this question of maturity and why maturity here? Well, for King, maturity is about understanding when you are wrong, understanding that nobody's perfect and that you need to confront the tragedies of your decision-making, the errors in your ways, and try to admit and atone for where you've gone awry, for the sins you've committed in the world, the errors in your ways, even including, and this is a kind of Weberian um, impulse, even when that wasn't your attention. You know, part of what political responsibility requires is understanding that even unintended consequences are your fault. And then trying to make reparation for those harms. And so King contrasts that with a picture of American policymakers and American media locked in a perpetual image generating machine, right? Like trying to live up to a projected image of strength, of innocence, of Mm. purity that other societies and their own dissenters can see right through. And that sometimes we go to war just to shore up an image instead of having the maturity to recognize where we've fallen short and try to make amends and rebuild an international order around Mm. a sense of genuine acknowledgement about moral wrongs perpetrated in our name. I hear something very churchy here. I mean, it's, we've got to go to confession. We've got to have a good act of contrition. We've got to think of atonement and then reparations. At the same time, there's something very dare I say, realist about it. That speech has a complete history of the war in Vietnam, and it's accurate, it's tested. Mm -hmm. Going back to Ho Chi Minh putting Jeffersonian phrases in his own constitution, and Franklin Roosevelt having halfway committed himself to not restore the French in Indochina after the war. I mean, he knew his history, and he, he knew the battles. So it's an interesting complexity here, a Christian realist. What does that mean? Or have I got the right phrase? I think that's right. He has this sense of fallibility, right? We're not perfect. We'll make mistakes. We'll put evil into the world, even when we don't intend to do so, and sometimes when we intend to do so. But we have a power to build something new, to create a new way forward, to change direction. And it's going to come from trying to generate forgiveness, right? Trying Mm. to cultivate forgiveness, trying to rebuild trust, right? So it's not just confession and contrition for cosmic sake. It's for the realist problem of restoring trust in the world such that when you say things in public, and we're dealing with this with Biden's recent speech, when you say things in public 
they're heard the way you intend them. They're not filtered through the unacknowledged, unremediated mistakes and errors and evils of the past. Mm-hmm. It's the only way to begin anew. It's the only way to restore some possibility of mutual understanding and mutual trust. That's at the heart of King's translation of Christian love ethics into the realist paradigms of international relations and contentious politics. Speak of the personal trial for him here and the difficulty of giving this speech. A lot of his fellow clergymen didn't like it. Goes without saying the New York Times didn't like it either. I mean, this was a real a real career turn at very high risk. It's among the riskiest decisions he ever made. The great cultural critic Harold Cruz in his synoptic account of black 20th century politics ranks it as one of the greatest political mistakes of Mm. black politics in the 20th century. He says that King sacrifices his authority and power and connection to the Johnson administration and his leadership at the head of the civil rights movement for an essentially moralist stance against the war in Vietnam. And it's an argument that you have to take seriously, but it's one that I think ultimately fails for the reasons that King gives in the speech. It tries to separate in a way that I think King's moral realist paradigm forces us to wrestle with. If your project is based on the furtherance of particular ideals, the expression of certain values, the defense of certain principles, it's always going to be susceptible to the charge of hypocrisy. Hmm. And so you have to be diligent and vigilant in trying to defend your movement against that charge by living up to the principles of constancy, consistency. So how can he raise his voice against violence in Watts and Detroit and Newark if he can't raise his voice against violence in Southeast Asia? He's right about that. How can you expect the Vietnamese revolutionaries to see America as a beacon of freedom and equality egalitarian ideals and defense of the principle of self-determination if when non-white peoples express those principles, they side with the neo-colonial project. They try to help the French restore colonialism. How can anyone take this seriously? And it, and it mm. really does matter, even for a realist paradigm, because insofar as realism is meant to predict what other people do based on their interests, based on their understandings and worldviews, they've got to give an account of how utterances made by policymakers and statesmen are going to be heard. And the charge of hypocrisy matters an enormous deal in this arena. I love the way you bring out the complexities in this voice. He's much more than a preacher, although he identified himself with his job in Montgomery. He's much more than a dreamer or a hoper. Yeah. He's really a strategist Absolutely. with a Christian moral piece of the, of the calculation. He's a great public philosopher in this sense, which is that, yes, he's coming from a prophetic Christian tradition. You can't erase that. You wouldn't want to erase that. It's the source mm-hmm. of many of his great ideals. But he's giving reasons that people from lots of traditions can accept. He's trying to build what you know, the philosopher John Rawls might call overlapping consensus on certain public political values. So 
even as he speaks in the idiom of love, repentance, confession, Mm-hmm. These are concepts that permit a secular description. Often he gives the secular description and allows a lot of different traditions to buy in. Coming up, those giant triplets, racism, militarism, and extreme materialism. This is Open Source. Martin Luther King Jr.'s anti-Vietnam War speech from 1967. Dr. King was calling for a moral revolution in our foreign relations. A true revolution of values will lay hand on the world order and say of war, this way of settling differences is not just this business of burning human beings with napalm, of filling our nation's homes with orphans and widows, of injecting poisonous drugs of hate into the veins of peoples normally humane, of sending men home from dark and bloody battlefields physically handicapped and psychologically deranged, cannot be reconciled with wisdom, justice, and love, a nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death. Brandon Terry, in Dr. King's voice, I'm hearing Reinhold Niebuhr, too, the dominant Protestant thinker of his time, German-American, a gritty realist, the very opposite of the power of positive thinking. It was said that Martin Luther King learned more from Niebuhr than he did from Gandhi, and it had to do with sin, failure, the irony of seeing ourselves in our enemies and them in us. Niebuhr was hopeful but tough-minded, challenging. I mean, obviously King is deeply influenced by Niebuhr, particularly Niebuhr's work, uh, Moral Man and Immoral Society. And it's from Niebuhr that King, uh, he has a great essay called The Pilgrimage to Nonviolence, where he talks a lot about his influence from Niebuhr. And one of the things he says he learns from Niebuhr is to dispense with a sort of naive Protestant liberalism. Yes. You know, the, the more naive versions of the social gospel where, you know, all we need to do is teach the rich to learn to love. Love can solve our social problems as an affect, as an ethos. Uh, and it doesn't take seriously the necessity of coercion and the deepness of, of social evil, particularly as people act as collectivities. Right. Um, he always thinks that people are better as individuals than they are as groups. So he gets a lot of that from Niebuhr. But one of the things I think he holds on to and and where he's sharper than Niebuhr is that he's got a a greater sense than Niebuhr does at that point, at the point he writes the irony book, of the kind of rot, the ideological rot at the core of American life. He's got a deeper sense of how the influence of racism really blocks our ability to hear the demands, the needs, the declarations of rights from non-white peoples around the world. He's got a great sense of how profit motivations are running roughshod over any realist considerations or real constraint on where we should deploy our treasure, our lives in a militaristic fashion. He's got a great sense of where 
nationalism overwhelms our sense of universal brotherhood and our chance to challenge valuations that try to partition the world between friend and enemy in neat ways that permit excessive forms of violence. So King to me is sharper in all of those respects because he's not as susceptible to the idea that this is just about a failure of grand ideals being overstretched in the in the desire to promote freedom. He's very clear of what we're doing in, in Vietnam. It's a neo-imperialist project. It's a racist project. It's really evil. And we need to do everything we can, he argues, to stop it while not sacrificing our other values. And for him, those are values of nonviolence. Stand by, Brendan Terry. We'll come back to this matter of materialism, especially that he would observe and how he would see it in the present world. Andy Bezovich, you're our man with the West Point military training and Vietnam experience, and now in the Quincy Institute that you founded, you're the champion of restraint and realism to end the forever wars, seems like ever since Vietnam. What's your sense of the relevance today of Dr. King's speech? I'm tempted to ask Brandon Terry how old he was and where he was <laughs> when I'm not sure Dr. King gave the Riverside Address. I can tell you how old I was and where I was. I was a 20-year-old cadet at West Point. Wow. Meaning that basically my job was to get ready to go to Vietnam and not to think too deeply mm. about the war, its origins, its conduct. I don't recall even noticing the speech when it was given. I only came to appreciate its profound brilliance uh, years later. I have to say that for my money, King's Riverside Address and Jimmy Carter's Malay speech, much derided, are really the two most important uh, critiques of our contemporary American life that I know of, at least as expressed in a public forum. Because both of them, to my mind, really amounted to a critical assessment of what Americans mean when they proclaim American freedom. And so my appreciation of the Riverside speech, which I came to embarrassingly late, focuses on Dr. King's reference to the giant triplets mm. of racism, extreme materialism, and militarism. It seems to me that here in 2022, however belatedly, However, incompletely, uh, we as a nation have come to some appreciation of how evil racism is as a component of our story. But I would hasten to say there has been no comparable uh, reckoning with materialism and militarism. That's the piece that needs to be done. Brandon referenced the ideological rot. What a fabulous uh, phrase that is. And it seems to me if the ideological rot was evident to Dr. King back in 1967, it ought to be even more evident uh, to us today. Maybe we're making some progress on race, but when it comes to militarism and materialism, I'd say no progress at all. Let's hear Dr. King's introduction of those triplets. We as a nation must undergo a radical revolution of values. We must rapidly begin... We must rapidly begin the shift from a thing-oriented society to a person-oriented society when machines and computers, profit motives and property rights are considered more important than people 
the giant triplets of racism, extreme materialism, and militarism are incapable of being conquered. What did he mean? And exactly what do you mean on that point of extreme materialism? I've heard the recording many times. I must admit that hearing the recording this time, on this occasion, I was struck by how tepid the applause was when he was talking about the need to make of a revolution in values. It did not sound like a standing ovation. Uh, it sounded like polite clapping. And yet, again, to my mind, that was the essence of the challenge that he was proposing. And I have come to believe that materialism really is its the essence of American freedom as we defined it. To be free is to have choices. To be free is to consume. To be free is to be able to move wherever I want to, whenever I want to. To have a car, to be able to catch a plane. I mean, certainly, I don't mean to diminish for a second sort of the Jeffersonian definition of American values and of American freedom. But as a practical matter, on a day-to-day basis, what we mean by freedom is to get more and to enjoy more of it. And I think that's what Dr. King was decrying. And I have to say, I, I don't believe we've, we've made an iota of progress in addressing that. Militarism, my God. <laughs> the American penchant for force, for armed intervention, we lead the world in those categories. Hmm. I am amazed how quickly after our longest war in Afghanistan finally wound down after 20 years and ended in what can only be described as complete and utter failure. I'm amazed at how quickly the Ukraine war uh, basically has provided an excuse for us to erase Afghanistan, to erase Iraq from our memory. So there's no serious discussion in our country about what we should learn uh, from our post-9-11 wars and, and how we should behave differently in the future. We all know and we take for granted uh, that from one year to the next, Pentagon spending goes up. Uh, this year, Congress appropriated more money for the Pentagon than the Biden administration even asked for. We should know, but don't particularly pay any attention to, that the modernization of the U.S. military to include the complete redesign of our nuclear strike force at a projected cost of something like a trillion and a half or $1.7 trillion is underway. No serious discussion, no sort of statement of why this is necessary. So I'm sorry to say uh, that despite his summons, to his fellow citizens, that yes, maybe we're making some progress on racism, but materialism mm. and militarism continue, full throttle. What throws me, as I've said in this speech, is the moral voice, incredible addition to the language of realism, and we'll get to that. But for you, Andy, how does morality inflect your own calls for military restraint, for cutting the Pentagon budget? but also staying out of most of the wars we've been in over the last 50 years. What's the moral piece for you? Well, I, I guess I come to the moral piece from a historical perspective in the sense that, I hesitate to use the phrase history teaches, but I will. I mean, <laughs> history teaches that war is a problematic undertaking. It's not predictable. 
It's not controllable. With astonishing frequency, it gives rise to unintended consequences and costs far greater than anybody expected. Iraq and Afghanistan, in that regard, end up being Exhibit A uh, and Exhibit B. If, if war were an effective mechanism for correcting wrongs, for doing good for others, then I might be a militarist. But everything we know about war tells us just to the contrary. And therefore, there does need to be a strong moral inhibition toward using a force. And that's been absent from American politics, uh, you know, for a long time. It's amazing how simply Dr. King said it. We have not been good news for the Vietnamese people. It's that simple. So come home. I think the speech came across as radical because, of course, it was made in a, in a historical context and the near-term historical context was the Cold War. Falsely viewed, but widely viewed as a Manichaean struggle. There were the good guys and there were the bad guys. Right. And we knew we were the good guys. And I think that that false assertion impeded efforts to examine with even a modicum of honesty our own actions, whether in Vietnam or elsewhere, because we wouldn't want to back away even an inch from the claim that the Cold War was necessary, justified, and uh, you know something that needed to be pursued until victory. You know, we've all been drowning in these arguments about general secular national strategies, the Mearsheimer school of realism, for example, or the interventionist habits of the neoconservatives, the Iraq war planners, for example, the regime changers. How did we let George W. Bush get away with saying the Iraq war was a moral sort of crusade? God wanted all people to be free, and it would be almost racist to exclude the Arabs of Iraq from that blessing. Therefore, off to war. I'm so happy to hear the upfront moral considerations in Dr. King's speech, but I wonder where it has been. What do you make of the, of the false morals and the absence of an underlying moral sense in our geopolitical strategies. Brendan? I'm going to try to make three points here. So one is a reflexive tendency in American life to treat moral considerations as the opposite of strategic considerations. Right. To act as if ethical concerns are not constitutive of practical matters. Right. And you can see this in a number of places, the denigration of philosophy and humanistic education, mm. the ascendancy of cost benefit analysis without comparable assessments of the moral principles and categories by which we evaluate. So that's part of it. A second piece of it is a very longstanding idea which predates the founding of America, but coincides with its founding and its intensification. And that's liberal ideas of imperialism. So the idea that part of the mission of liberalism, part of the mission of universal liberal principles is to impose them through force on backwards non-white societies. And you can see this in John Stuart Mill, Immanuel Kant, a lot of great liberal thinkers have these exception clauses for non-white peoples where 
force is justified in ruling them because they either can't adapt themselves to liberal principles or they need tutelage in order to get there. And very conveniently, uh, this is a great ideological home for the most vicious forms of militarism. The last piece here, and I think the most important for us, is that we have allowed questions of war and peace to be too neatly partitioned on the idea of the domestic front and the global front. We don't do a great moral accounting of the cost of war at home. So all I'm here doing is is deepening a point that Andy made before, which is to say, we're not getting the cost right (laughs) because we're not thinking about what King called the values and principles that are the other casualties of war. War has boomerang effects. We know that war unleashes white nationalist disaffection at home. We know that war material comes home and gets sent to police departments who become militarized and vicious. We know that war extracts an enormous cost on freedom of expression, right? The curtailing of protest, the increase in surveillance, the difficulty in freedom of assembly. So for all of the consumer freedoms that war capitalism has helped bring home for American consumers, it's destroyed all of these other freedoms that were once central to the liberal Republican tradition. This is a profound moral cost of forever war, and we're not even getting it on the ledger. Mm. Let me add one thing. I agree with everything that, that Brandon just said. And what I would add relates to the present moment. Prior to the Ukraine war beginning, there was a fairly lively sense in our politics that something had gone fundamentally wrong yes. with the way America works. If you want to attach a one-word label, which I think is vastly oversimplified, but a one-word label, Trumpism, caused us to worry about whether or not we can have a, an election to choose our leaders and have, it, have the outcome be accepted. Mm-hmm. I cannot help but be struck by the fact that the Ukraine war and the imperative, perceived imperative, of the United States committing itself wholeheartedly to one side uh, as opposed to the other has marginalized all those concerns. All those concerns that seem to be moving toward the center of our politics before this war began now have become an afterthought. And I think that's another example of the way that war hijacks, perverts politics, again, to emphasize Brandon's point, at home. It's not simply effects that happen out there, but profound negative effects happen at home as a consequence of our ill-advised military policies. Coming up, if we had to choose nonviolence or non-existence, pick one. This is Open Source. back to the theme of maturity, Dr. King wasn't sure we would reach it, but basically confession, contrition, atonement for our sins in Vietnam. What did come back, in fact, toward the cause of maturity in our world today? As you say, Andy, a rather rather confused, troubled America we didn't know before. What did come back? 
Brendan? King has a line in the speech that I think is one of the most important phrases to come out of African-American political thought for our public life. He's talking about the mendacity that characterized the, the prosecution of the Vietnam War. And he says, when that kind of mendacity becomes normal, we add cynicism to the process of death. And that's what came home from Vietnam. If you look at any political science data on, dis on trust and distrust in American life, Vietnam causes trust in the government to fall off a cliff. It sets in motion the kind of suspicions, polarizations that have characterized American political life since the 1970s. It crushes the idea that we are going to side with the revolutionary spirit in the world that that's even an option for us. We brought home, you see it in Vietnam, with drug abuse, you know, racial conflicts between soldiers, assaults of soldiers on their officers, the kind of nihilism on the battlefield where people just trying to make it home because they know they're being asked, in the famous words of, of John Kerry, to die for a mistake, that comes home and that becomes a way of life for us. So now we've got people who are being asked to bear the burdens of military conflicts that the rest of us don't even acknowledge, right? How do mm -hmm. they experience, right? How do people who've had to bury sons and daughters who died in Afghanistan or worse in, in places where the rest of the country doesn't even know we're at war, like in Africa, how do you convince those parents mm -hmm. that this country is a cooperative enterprise, <laughs> that they're not being asked to bear sacrifices that the rest of us want to ignore. How do you do that? That breeds mm. cynicism. That's where you get the, some of the viciousness. When you go to war in Afghanistan and you come back with the largest heroin epidemic in the history of the world, how can that not be anything other than an artifact of cynicism and nihilism? So that's what I think came home. And we still, again, maturity is acknowledging that and starting to work through that spiritual rot at the heart of the culture that crystallized in that moment. I think that is just so right. What came home? What came home was a reconception of citizenship that included the rejection of responsibility. To me, the preeminent example of this was the creation of the so-called all-volunteer force, abandoning the notion that citizens as citizens have some responsibility to defend the country, basically hiring out that function to economically motivated uh, volunteers. That sounds like I'm saying something bad about the troops. Uh, I'm not. Uh, but what I am saying is that the creation of the all-volunteer force gave permission to the rest of us basically to ignore what the troops are called upon to do, where they're sent, and with what consequences. That may not be the most important expression of our contemporary crisis, but I would argue strongly that it is an important expression. Let me ask you both a question about American interest in our role abroad. We are not deeply absorbed in foreign affairs, even though Ukraine's in every headline now, particularly in times where questions of social justice are really burning bright, as they are now around Black Lives Matter, for example, or around the climate crisis. Foreign policy tends to take a back seat 
as you say, we don't inventory the costs of our wars abroad. How would we reintegrate those two areas of our lives after Martin Luther King's example? He couldn't plunge along in the poverty programs without noticing the terrible, terrible cost of Vietnam. How do we get that into our heads again? Well, if there is to be a revolution in values, to use Dr. King's phrase, it has to begin at home. I think that, I was about to say unstated, maybe it's a frequently stated uh, premise of U.S. foreign policy, is that we have values that are ready for export. Uh, We have values that we are prepared to hand over to or imprint upon Iraqis and Afghans and, you know, you name it, with an astonishing absence of any self-awareness. So we, as people, I think, tend to draw this sharp line between foreign policy and, and domestic politics. We know that line shouldn't exist. It really, really doesn't exist. And I think it's a source of uh, incredible self-deception and therefore defective policy. I think this is partly an artifact, too, of failures of civic education. When you learn about American history, it's a profoundly nationalist story, one that's almost entirely bounded by the 50 states. You don't learn much about America's imperialist history. You don't learn about the militaristic uh, adventures of the Cold War. You don't learn about our history in Latin America, Southeast Asia. You don't learn about our attempts to influence African politics, uh, sometimes through assassination. You don't learn about our security state agencies and the way that they've disrupted emancipatory movements at, at home and abroad. When you're forced to make judgments as a citizen, even when you're making bare minimum judgments about where to devote your attention, you tend to lack the basic scaffolding you would need to understand the world around you. When Donald Trump gave the remark about Haiti being a country, Hmm. it's like we've got enough of a sort of racial etiquette that people were quick to point out that that seemed like an anti-black statement. What we lacked was any knowledge of how intertwined our militaristic history is with the utterly impoverished and decrepit state of Haitian life. We don't have any sense of our responsibility of that. So at best, it was an etiquette thing. How can you say this about black people? Well, it should be a responsibility thing, a maturity thing, that we're part of the reason people's lives are so miserable in this country. We did that, right? That was done in our name. But if that's not taught to people, right, if we're not opening up our newspapers to voices from around the world, opening up our universities and high schools to voices from around the world, uh, opening up our borders to more migrants from around the world. How will people come to know this history? They just won't. And they'll go on stuck in these images, stuck in these scripts, stuck in these narratives that allow them to live in immaturity and irresponsibility. You know, I think the thing I would add is that uh, 
I'm going to speak ill of my fellow citizens here, I'm afraid. The widespread perception that a place like Haiti really doesn't matter all that much, I think, stems from a, a conviction that there are a lot of other places that matter much, much more. So why should I study the occupation of Haiti for a couple of decades by the United States Marine Corps when I, sh- I can be studying the liberating narrative of the United States in World War II, in the Cold War, culminating in the liberation of, of, of Europe, stories that are far more uplifting, make me feel good about myself and about my country. Uh, and, and, and I think that certainly within the political establishment, but I suspect more broadly just among many of our fellow citizens, there's a preference for the good news story, which becomes, of course, an enormous barrier to self-knowledge, self-understanding, and correction. Which provokes my question, what would Dr. King be making of our own responses to the war in Ukraine? It has become a feel-good American story, not only because our troops aren't directly involved, but because we found a very sympathetic hero in President Zelensky. But I think he might be wondering why we aren't saying what he said at Riverside. Somehow this madness must cease. We must get to the bargaining table or some sort of table. The The war must end. But also... We're already in love with our own righteousness compared to Brother Putin. And we love it in that sense. What would he be cautioning us about what we're doing and observing in Ukraine? I think the number one thing he would say is that we're risking something cataclysmic in our enthusiasm for war, and that's nuclear conflict. Yep. It's something that's come barreling back into our national consciousness after many, many years on the back burner. But the fact that the two most nuclear-armed nations in the world are currently engaged in a proxy conflict is a frightening thing. It sounds familiar. Again, like the the tragic piece of King's thinking (laughs) is so important here because... People make mistakes. So Mm. we're in an era, my friend and colleague Sam Moyne often talks about this. It's like we're in an era where people's obsession with precision weapons, targeted attacks, kill list, precise information on targets makes it seem like war is a precise enterprise. It's not. Mm. The fog of war is still real. People are making split-second judgments. Weapons fall into the wrong hands. People are making judgments under extreme levels of fatigue and emotion in situations that feel like they're of existential import. In that kind of situation, the chances for nuclear conflict rise dramatically. So I think one of the things King would would say to us is that we're still in this moment of choosing between nonviolence and non-existence. One, at the level of nuclear conflict, and two, at the thing that hangs over all of this, which is climate change. The conflict that's unfolding in the Ukraine is destroying the chances for global cooperation to face the other existential threat we have, which is climate change. So whatever the response is to the current conflict, 
that horizon of restoring international cooperation toward those ends has to be part of the ideals that animate our decision-making. I agree with that. And I think I would add this, that uh, I imagine Dr. King would also say that the immediate imperative is to shut this war down, this war that is killing, injuring so many people, creating this flood of refugees. And I think he would say that that means encouraging the warring parties to come to a settlement or a deal. Mm -hmm. And by extension, I believe he would denounce President Biden's speech of the other day when Biden had the temerity to basically announce as a war aim regime change in Moscow. That was a shocker. It ain't going to happen. And it, it didn't make President Zelensky's task any easier. Indeed, it probably made it many times more difficult. So it is get out of the way. Encourage other people to get the work done. But don't make the job more complicated. It's fascinating. Dr. King spoke longingly of a universal understanding of mankind. We must reconcile our policy, our lives to, with wisdom, justice, love. Our own time is, we, we seem to observe, hell-bent toward nationalism, toward small groups, toward anything but universal emotion, solidarity. What would Dr. King make of the nationalist, localized, ethnic spirit of our times? Well, you know, it's a question that King was deeply vexed by within his own tradition, right? So while he's engaged in anti-war activism, he's also engaged in a pretty intense debate with the black nationalist movement uh, in the United States mm. at the time. So he's somebody that's thinking a lot about nationalism and probably one of the more defensible nationalisms to, uh, to emerge in the modern world, which is black nationalism. And what he says, I think, is right, which is that... He's got his, his metaphysical views and his moral views that, look, we're all just interconnected. We're all made in the image of God. Each one of us has moral value. We have a standing that's prior to and superior to any ascriptive group that we belong to. But he also has a more pressing political argument, one that I think is probably a bit more persuasive to, to secular ears, which is that for all of the fire and fury that you hear in nationalist argument, you've got to press down more deeply to see that we are enmeshed in a single garment of destiny. That's a matter of economic fact. It's a matter of social and political fact. It's a matter of historical fact. What did we just live through? What are we still living through? The COVID pandemic. What better evidence do we need? That there's no way to segregate and isolate ourselves out of interconnectedness. We have to come to terms with that fact or perish in our immature reaction to it. In Ukraine, can you imagine how Dr. King would resolve the tension between the claims of self-determination and also the realities of living next to the bear? Well, I have to say that I think he would see as the pressing imperative to shut the war down. Stop the killing. 
and then to, from a U.S. perspective, try to play a useful role in negotiating the post-war order. You just made the critical point, Chris. When the shooting stops, Ukraine and Russia will continue to be neighbors. They must learn to coexist. Uh, I think negotiating the terms of coexistence is going to be a a real challenge. Uh, Frankly, I think that the the predominant voice should be that of the president of Ukraine, not the president of the United States, who has a different agenda, necessarily has has a different agenda. There's not going to be an easy solution, but coexistence has to be the goal. Gentlemen, it's a privilege to engage you on a terribly difficult, deeply interesting subject. Thank you, Brandon Terry and Andrew Basevich. Thank you, Chris. Hey, thanks for letting me have the opportunity to, uh, to meet Brandon. Brandon Terry's edited collection of essays on Martin Luther King Jr. includes 50 Years Since MLK from the Boston Review. Andrew Basevich, president of the Quincy Institute, will be participating in a Riverside Church commemoration of King's famous sermon this Saturday, April 2nd at 4 p.m. in New York. The speech will be presented by King's daughter, Dr. Bernice King, for virtual and in-person attendance. You've just heard another installment of In Search of Monsters, our limited series collaboration with the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Read more from Andrew Basevich. His essay, for example, The End of History, again, in Quincy's online magazine, responsiblestatecraft.org. Our show this week was produced by Mary McGrath and Adam Coleman, with engineering help from the WBUR production team. I'm Christopher Leiden. Join us next time. Join us every time for Open Source. Open Source is a proud member of Hub and Spoke, a nonprofit collective of independent podcasts, including Iconography, a tour from the host Charles Gustine of the icons that define our world. The Boston Marathon is coming up soon, so why not check out his episode from the Iconography Archive called The Sitgo Sign and the Boston Marathon. Find it all at iconographypodcast.com. And check out the whole Hub and Spoke lineup at hubspokeaudio.org.